Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. This week on Talk Nation Radio, Tomorrow the World, the Birth of U.S. Global Supremacy. Stephen Wertheim is a historian of U.S. foreign policy. He is deputy director of research and policy at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. He is also a research scholar at the Saltzman Institute of War and Peace Studies at Columbia University. His terrific new book is called Tomorrow the World, the Birth of U.S. Global Supremacy. Stephen Wertheim, welcome to Talk Nation Radio. Thanks so much for having me, David. Thanks for coming on. Thanks very much for writing this book. Uh, So what is meant by U.S. global supremacy? I mean the consensus that we see around us today, but that wasn't held by American leaders through most of American history up to what I argue is 1940 and 41. So I mean the notion that the United States should be the dominant military power in the world, should project its military force uh, on a global scale uh, in the name of enforcing world order. Very hard to find a mainstream politician today who doesn't essentially subscribe to those views. And before World War II, before 1940, specifically, it was very hard to find American leaders who thought that that's what the United States should be, because the United States had a long-standing tradition of avoiding so-called entanglement in the old world of Europe and Asia. Is is top world weapons dealer part of that? Is having some 90% of the foreign military bases in the world part of it? Is spending the most money by far on its military part of that? It's all part of that. I suppose it would be possible for the United States not to be the leading uh, dealer of weapons to the world uh, while still, you know, having a lot of bases and spending way more on its military than others. But everything you describe is uh, part of the consensus uh, in favor of military dominance that that we see in our own uh, time and we've seen for a long time as well. Now, is this a consensus uh, among government officials and uh, media elites, or is it a consensus across the U.S. public? Because I suspect, and I'm I'm happy to be uh, proved wrong, but I suspect most people in the United States, uh, certainly more in the United States than outside of it, don't know about U.S. global supremacy, uh, and that those who do... Uh, either picture the U.S. Uh, reluctantly dragged into it by the world or imagine it as a sort of a steady effort that began in the 17th century. Am I, am I wrong? It's a great question. You know, if you uh, look at public opinion polls today, it's true that most Americans will say that the United States should maintain military superiority, although notably the numbers are declining Uh, basically with each generation that goes on to the point uh, that uh, very broadly defined millennials, uh, now about half say it's important for the United States to maintain military superiority and half do not. So that's a notable trend. But clearly the consensus is strongest among political elites. So this would include, yes, uh, foreign policy makers, 
in the government, but also commentators, uh, you know, members of Congress. Most people who come on TV and say, I'm a foreign policy expert, subscribe broadly to to the consensus in favor of military dominance. Ben Rhodes has called this group of people the blob. And uh, though it's a controversial term, I think it's pretty good. But these, but these are people who have some idea what the U.S. Uh, federal discretionary budget looks like, who have some idea who has bases where, uh, and are at least a few of them vaguely aware of who is the top weapons dealer to the rest of the world, where I, I think uh, much of the public really does not have a clue on those things. Yeah, and I, you know, they would not be surprised, I think, by any of the facts uh, like the United States spends uh, more than half of its federal discretionary budget on the military. They know that Congress uh, reauthorizes uh, massive military spending every year. They know that the United States uh, rigs the globe with military bases and has far more bases than, than any other country. So, yes, yeah, people who subscribe to this consensus know the basic facts uh, behind it. And, and so your contention, I think, answering a question that many of us didn't know we needed to ask, uh, which is, you know, the best kind of book to get, uh, it, your contention is that this was born, this consensus uh, didn't exist and was born at a particular point in time, right? Yeah, that's the, the thing that really struck me after sp- spending a long time in archives, uh, that there was a kind of conscious decision to take a country that uh, did not uh, want to ring the globe with its military. Uh, It did many things to expand its power throughout its history, which we can talk about. But at the same time, it had expanded its power in the name of avoiding entanglements and power politics centered in uh, the old world of Europe. And at a very particular point in time, after the Nazis conquered France, a range of American officials and intellectuals decided that the United States should play a new role and become the armed superpower far into the future. And initially, that wasn't an obvious choice. There were others, uh, some of them elite, uh, uh, who thought, wait a minute, uh, let's stay uh, with our non-entanglement tradition and guard the Western Hemisphere, but go no further. And that was a plausible proposal, but it lost out uh, in 1940 and 41. At which point the U.S. had long had troops in Asia and Latin America and uh, scattered around the world, right? The U.S. hadn't been completely limited to one hemisphere up until that, that point, right? That's true. Now, the United States, uh, for example, was the colonial master of the Philippines starting in 1898. Uh, Some tried to squint really hard and pretend that that was part of the extended Western Hemisphere. (laughs) Um, So not not terribly plausible. But, uh, you know, in the 20s and 30s, there was a reaction against U.S. participation in World War One. The United States declined to Uh, participate in the League of Nations, for example. And there was even a substantial reaction against U.S. military interventions in in Latin America, and that helped to produce the good neighbor policy 
under the administrations of Herbert Hoover and then Franklin Roosevelt. And, you know, that's why when American officials, as the war in Europe started uh, toward the end of 1939, uh, as American uh, officials and intellectuals sat down to think about the shape of things to come, they really couldn't imagine that the United States could or should anytime soon uh, abandon its uh, tradition of non-entanglement in Europe in particular and become the kind of armed superpower of the world. It was like a wildly implausible notion uh, to people who uh, just months later were then planning for that very thing. And and why why what happened in those intervening months? It's because of the the Nazi conquest of France. That's the triggering event, I think. Uh, and the Nazi conquest of France raises the specter for a period of time that the Axis powers, totalitarian powers, will become the dominant powers in Europe and across Eurasia. And then this creates a scenario that Americans hadn't really had to contemplate before. What does it mean for the United States if the United States were to not be able to trade, to engage in, you know, travel, all kinds of interactions around the world on basically American-style liberal terms, but instead uh, Axis powers held preeminent uh, power in the Eastern Hemisphere. So essentially, it seemed to many Americans that now there had to be uh, a choice. Did the United States want to continue to be exceptionalist and imagine itself as driving the engine of world history and also engage in near-universal intercourse and interaction around the world? If so, it would have to back up that aspiration by military force. Other Americans made a different choice. They thought, well, it would be okay for the United States and its prosperity and its security if the United States continued to avoid extra hemispheric military entanglement. Not desirable, and you never know how things will shake out in Europe and Asia, but the United States doesn't need to change dramatically its conception of its vital interests. Yeah. We're speaking with Stephen Wertheim, whose book is Tomorrow the World, The Birth of U.S. Global Supremacy. Stephen, if if Thomas Jefferson or Teddy Roosevelt had had airplanes and tanks and factories and millions of available draftees, is there any reason to think that they wouldn't have wanted global supremacy? Is is it the desires that changed or is it the abilities that changed? Well, those two things are connected, right? So the United States had the largest economy in the world uh, as of the 1870s, we think. So that's a number of decades in which America's economic supremacy didn't seem to its ruling class to imply a need for global military dominance. Uh, And that said, the United States continued to expand its power, became a great power, uh, very explicitly under Theodore Roosevelt. Uh, but, you know, I think coming out of World War I, it had, if it had really wanted to play a globe-spanning military role, uh, it probably could have mobilized to do so. And in fact, in, in 1940, when 
uh, the United States instituted the first ever draft in, in peacetime and started uh, building a, a, a two-ocean navy, um, you know, it was a pretty bold move uh, at the time, but it suggests that the United States, uh, still at that point recovering from the Depression, could have done so earlier had it really wanted to. So during World War II, before the United States is in World War II, you have U.S. officials and foreign policy experts uh, deciding that the U.S. wants to be in, in the European uh, part of World War II. Uh, why exactly? And then how uh, does, the, does the U.S. public come around? So what they said, um, both privately and publicly, essentially, was that the United States, if it allowed the Axis powers to prevail and rule Europe and Asia or be the preeminent powers there, would be isolated. It would be hunkered down. It would be on the receiving end of world history, even as it would have undisputed dominance throughout the Western Hemisphere, an entire hemisphere of the world, one of two. So they rendered hemispheric, quote-unquote, isolation as tantamount to a security problem for the United States. Um, and, you know, I, I, I don't have a conspiratorial view of things. I think more of the public had their leaders uh, opted differently would have made would have gone along with different choices but on the other hand there were a good number of americans i mean all americans didn't want the nazis to rule europe uh and um well not all but but a good number (laughs) a good number but you know as of uh uh the fall of 1940 uh very few americans wanted to enter the war in europe but far more in public opinion polls said that they would rather enter the war if necessary to uh, prevent a Nazi victory than to keep out of the war. So that's, I think, a, a, a telling fact. But they had a lot of cues as well from, from uh, foreign policymakers. But what's interesting to me is, you know, we can spend a lot of time and, and a lot of historians have looked into this debate over what the United States should do about the immediate war circumstance prior to Pearl Harbor. But what I found is that Uh, There was another discussion going on having to do with America's post-war role in the world, and that has been given less attention. So it might have been the case that people would have argued, okay, the United States should get into World War II, uh, defeat the Axis powers, and then, having accomplished its mission, send the troops home, and let's reassess things in the post-war world, uh, and if there are threats, then we'll act with those threats, but we don't need to be the dominant power, you know, trying to police the world for all time. So that might have been uh, an appealing position, but I can find very few people making that argument at the time. Uh, in fact, there was all this planning going on, even before the United States had formally entered World War II, about America's post-war world role. Uh, and there the, the view was that America's retreat, so-called retreat from the world after World War I, had somehow created the conditions of World War II, and it was the American public 
that needed to be converted from so-called isolationism, a new word as of the 1930s and 40s, into internationalism, now redefined against isolationism and entailing first and foremost American armed dominance. I want to get to this uh, topic of the word isolationism that is a a great part of the book, but when when World War II did end uh, and large numbers of U.S. troops were slow to come home, there was public demand to to bring them home, wasn't there? That's right. There were mutinies. Uh, There was a lot of support for demobilization. In fact, so much so that uh, when American officials were trying to rally Congress to support uh, what became the early initiatives of the Cold War, the Truman Doctrine, the Marshall Plan, they uh, felt that they had to uh, scare the hell out of the American people. And a memorable phrase from Dean Acheson uh, about the Soviet threat in order to get uh, get sufficient support. So there's no question that there was um, uh, a public uh, weariness with the war, very understandably. Um, but at the same time, it's uh, hard to say uh, that the public, uh, you know, didn't um, buy the narrative that isolationism had to be cast aside and that it was important for the United States to be the, the military leader of the world. That, however, left an open question about exactly what actions needed to be taken uh, to secure uh, a, a decent world order. And so that story plays out. It's a little bit after my book, but it plays out in the second half of, of the 1940s. Yeah. Well, I hope there's another book coming. Um, the, when, I, you know, when I go, Stephen Wertheim, and I talk to college classes or high school classes by Zoom these days, and I say we should end all war, Almost inevitably, and especially if I ask, can anyone think of a just war, a justified war? Uh, almost and every time, it's World War II. People raise their hand and shout, "World War II." I mean, if it's any war in the past century and a half, it's absolutely World War II. And when I ask why, not a single person I think has ever mentioned uh, the need to prevent, you know, a Nazi sphere of influence isolating U.S. trade and the inability of the U.S. to dominate the globe. Um, uh, virtually every single, if not every single time, uh, the answer I'm given is Holocaust. Which mm. isn't, isn't mentioned in your book, Are, as you as you explain to people, uh, you know, why foreign policy elites in Washington, New York, wanted to get into World War II. Do you encounter uh, among the people you're speaking to this uh, this notion that is, as far as I can tell, completely false and ahistorical, uh, that in fact it was to rescue people from the Holocaust? That's fascinating. I uh, That's come up sometimes. Not very often, though, when I speak to audiences in the policymaking community, they are more receptive to the idea that, you know, uh, the United States needed to lead the world uh, and ensure a favorable balance of power in in Europe and Asia. That's very much how they see uh, America's role today. Um, But your point is, um, is an important one simply not the case that um, Americans advocated 
either intervention in World War II or post-war U.S. supremacy at the time uh, for the primary purpose of preventing the Holocaust in Europe or stopping the Holocaust when it was ongoing. It simply uh, is not part of uh, any, it's not a prominent part of the rationale uh, given, uh, either privately in uh, secret uh, planning meetings or publicly. Uh, you can simply read Henry Luce's uh, famous uh, American Century essay from February of 1941 in Life magazine, which Henry Luce was the publisher of, where he lays out a rationale for uh, U.S., comprehensive U.S. leadership of the world for uh, a century to come, and the Holocaust does not feature, uh, or the fate of the Jews in Europe does not, does not feature in that, in that essay. And so I think it's really important that um, uh, we understand, you know, what is it that actuates the United States uh, if we're going to make sense of, you know, what our uh, reasonable positions to take today about what American power might or might not achieve in the world. Well, see if you can find a college freshman who knows any of that, of what you just said. And uh, Well, and, maybe they'll get the book. Yeah, it, right. Maybe they'll get the book, and uh, and the point will become apparent. That's a good outcome. That's if why an, I wrote this thing. If enough people read the book, I'll find a college freshman <laughs> who hasn't who who knows this stuff, I, I hope. Um, uh, the book, uh, if you're just tuning in, is Tomorrow the World, The Birth of U.S. Global Supremacy by our guest, Stephen Wertheim. So you mentioned the so-called isolationism. What is What is isolation? Isolationism is not a position held by a group of Americans uh, ever. It is a term that began to be used only in the 1930s and was used heavily in the 1940s by one side in a political argument where people who eventually came to advocate U.S. armed dominance uh, claimed that they were the internationalists and anything else than armed dominance was isolationism. So I would reject the term as a, an actual way to describe the views of the people it named, whether it's the, uh, they're supposed to be in the past or whether they were in the moment of, 19, uh, of the 1930s and 40s. If there are any isolationists, uh, we'd have to say that it would be the group of people who gathered under the banner of the America First Committee, uh, which was a, an ideologically uh, a diverse group of people. But the America First Committee, uh, one of its central planks, said that the United States should defend by force the entire Western Hemisphere from any outside invasion, and that would be sufficient to uh, prevent the United States from being uh, attacked in North America. You know, is that isolationism? Um, you know, ask Central Americans, ask South Americans whether that's isolationism. So it's a term that none of them use for themselves for very good reason. It didn't describe their views uh, very meaningfully. So the real importance of the term isolationism, it is important. It lies in the way that people who use that vocabulary were able to anoint themselves as the internationalist and equate American dominance of power politics with the 
more traditional American desire to transcend power politics, positioned against isolationism, armed dominance uh, could become the way to cooperate with the world and dominate the world. Uh, I think it's an incredibly important point, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, it seems to be used in the same way today. Uh, either you're for NATO or you're an isolationist. You're, you're, you're either you're for, for militarism or you're against working uh, nations working with each other in any way whatsoever, as if the only way nations can talk to each other is through joint military efforts. Uh, there's no such thing as diplomacy or cooperation on on climate change or anything other than militarism. Uh, is, that, is that how it's still used today? Absolutely so. If you're for retracting America's military footprint anywhere, in any way, you are liable to be called an isolationist. Uh, and just look at the presidency of Donald Trump. Uh, Trump came into office vowing to build up the supposedly depleted U.S. military Indeed, uh, he spent more on the military. He's applied maximum pressure campaigns to Iran, to Venezuela, uh, to North Korea before switching gears. Um, you know, he, he's ratcheted up a lot of uh, U.S. military campaigns uh, in the greater Middle East. Uh, we could go on about that. And he is regularly called an isolationist. It just um, uh, doesn't make much sense. Uh, so... Whenever I read the term isolationism in a news report or anywhere else, uh, I know that something something is going on, <laughs> and uh, yeah. and you better pay close attention to to, to what that is. I, I would have loved to vote for Trump, the peacemaker, or Biden, the socialist. If either of them actually existed, uh, they would have been <laughs> great candidates. But but occasionally, once in a while, a, a clock stop a stopped clock is right twice a day. Trump does something for crazy reasons that I agree with, and so right now you have Congress trying to prevent a single troop being brought out of Korea or Germany or Afghanistan. Uh, and, if, and if you're in favor of that, you're an isolationist, right? That's right. That's right. But, um, you know, I, I, I do wonder, though, whether conditions are, are changing a bit. Uh, Donald Trump, when he leaves office, if things continue uh, as they have been, will become, I believe, the first president Franklin Roosevelt, yep. not to warn the public about reverting to so-called isolationism. Oh. So he's not an iso Trump is not an isolationist. Mm. Interesting. By any stretch, he's also not an anti-isolationist in his vocabulary. That is perhaps an interesting fact, and I think many of his opponents as well, having labeled him Trump an isolationist four years ago, have. Uh, gotten the message that, in fact, Trump did not affect uh, large-scale troop withdrawals or, any, or hardly any troop withdrawals, uh, and moreover, that calling him an isolationist was simply not effective politics. It did not move the American public as they might have expected.
And he, he not only didn't start a major new war, but he vetoed the ending of a war. Uh, so uh, that, that may be something we want to, to reverse. I wish we could go on for hours. Uh, we are running out of seconds. The, the book is Tomorrow the World, The Birth of U.S. Global Supremacy. Should be in every school and every household. Uh, get one now. Our guest has been Stephen Wertheim, who is a historian and deputy director of research and policy at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. Stephen Wertheim, thank you very, very much for coming on Talk Nation Radio. Thank you so much. My pleasure. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. Read or listen to today's Peace Almanac entry at peacealmanac.org. All past shows can be heard at talknationradio.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a nonprofit station, please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is supported by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.